standing up in McKinney. This is According to Callus. I'm hoping to have this up by uh, 4 o'clock on uh, Labor Day. A little special episode, if you will. Um, we're going to entitle it, What Remains? With a question mark. Almost a follow-up of sorts to uh, last week's final episode of Burn It Down with a question mark. I spent the weekend, as it were, uh, I read through We Will Not Be Silenced by Erwin Lutzer. I finished The Biblical Guide to Taking Dominion in Discipling Nations by Torba and Isker. And uh, I'm, I don't know, maybe a third of the way through The Boniface Option by Andrew Isker. Interestingly enough, I've been hesitant to spend much time talking about uh, something called Christian nationalism for a number of reasons. Nonetheless, or (laughs) none the least of which, is the absolute horror and shrieking by many people, including people I know, on the mere notion of a Christian nationalist movement or presence or argument. Now, I don't think Erwin uh, Lutzker, Lutzer, excuse me, is anywhere near that world. Uh, So I want to be clear about that. But one of the interesting things is the title of the book was We Will Not Be Silenced. And it's essentially, in my mind, a rebuttal of what's going on in the world today and how all things Christian or even remotely Christian must be removed, silenced, discredited, uh, trod under the feet of pagans everywhere. And this is an interesting thing because the pluralistic society that we've been sold for going on at least 60 years has not worked out so well for us. We had what I would call a Christian founding and a nominally Christian worldview or existence from, I guess, maybe the 1860s through the 1960s. And what we've seen since then is the drift through a neutral, right? We went from positive to neutral all the way to negative. And of course, this is nothing new. This is nothing that hasn't been talked about before. As a matter of fact, I I did listen to an interview with Andrew Isker and he kind of talked about this as being one of the preemptings of his latest or his latest book, the Boniface option. And he was uh, crediting somebody else. I want to say it was Aaron McIntyre. I'm not entirely sure. Um, I listened to the interview sometime last week. The idea is that we've gone past the idea where we were nominally Christian and it was seen as a positive thing blitzed right through the, well, we can have a pluralistic society and be neutral all the way to negative. Now, the interesting thing is in this country, we haven't gone full full status. We haven't gone full communist. We haven't gone full uh, anti-Christian, but we're right on the cusp of it. And the reaction or the pushback is coming from people who would, I guess, perhaps be considered Christian nationalists, but not necessarily. And what's interesting is sections of the church, predominantly the progressive church, have turned 
all their angst, all their vitriol at those people, at the people that want to push back, at people that want to hold the line, at people that want to proclaim Christ as king. They have spent all their time bemoaning and going after those folks, as opposed to the people that actually would like to see these people gone, i.e. Christians, the people that actually see us as evil, as the problems and all that is wrong with the world today. And this is nothing new. It is a culmination of events. This is where we're going. And even someone like myself, who I I wear my Christianity on my sleeve, on my show, and in private life, uh, there should be no doubt anybody that interacts with me where my allegiance lies, but I don't beat people over the head with it. I've gone to some lengths to be a friend to all and to purposely not antagonize people that are, let's say, agnostic or Jewish or even my Catholic brothers that I might disagree with uh, theologically, we're nominally on the same team. We want similar things, right? But it's come to a point where maybe that's not enough. Maybe being co-belligerents isn't enough. I I don't know that that's the case, but we're going to have to consider that that might become the case because, quite frankly, the progressive Christians seem more intent on destroying conservatives, destroying conservative Christianity, undoing orthodox Christianity. In fact, they seem to be the snake that's in the garden, if you will. Pardon the uh, term there, but that's just the best analogy I could come up with. So I want to read a couple excerpts that I think are directly relatable to what I'm talking about here. Uh, This is coming from uh, We Will Not Be Silenced in uh, page 134. He's talking about Hitler propaganda and the power of hate. Now, he also says that he wants to be very careful that he's not calling somebody a Nazi, but radical secularists, they specialize in propaganda. They specialize in anybody that speaks against them as being the enemy, the evil. They build the idea of it's not enough to just disagree. You must hate. And he uh, says, there are ways that heaven can be represented as hell and hell is heaven. The German people must be misled if the support of the masses is required. This is, you know, a quote from Hitler. Now, he wrote the book Mein Kampf, and what he talks about is Eric Pollard, the founder of ACT UP, writes that lying is a tactic that is used by homosexual activists. And he takes that, you know, section and provides it as a strategy for his group. By clever and preserving use of or persevering use of propaganda, even heaven can be represented as hell to the people, and conversely, the most wretched life is paradise. Now, he wants to then say, let's take a pause and discuss Hitler's strategic use of propaganda in Germany. All the studies I've read indicate that the people of Nazi Germany were ordinary citizens capable of sympathy 
and a willingness to help their neighbors. They appeared no different than other people in the flyover parts of the United States. There was only one way for Hitler to mobilize these people and join his cause. Hate would be the reason. Hate would do what reason could not. And fear would make certain that people fell in lockstep. He said this emotion, hatred, riles up the masses, and then reason would be just reserved for a few. Now, does any of this sound familiar? Any of this sound the least bit concerning? Does any of this, I don't know, ring any bells? It should. Now, I want to be clear. Uh, I'm not prepared to compare what is happening right now to anything that happened in Nazi Germany, the Soviet Union, or even Red China. What I am saying is these are precursors. These are the underlying elements that must be in place before we can go down in that direction. Indeed, again, in the same book, it talks about how Marxists routinely attack capitalism. And everything is wrong under capitalism. Every negative, every shortcoming is an excuse to blame capitalism. The argument, let's just jump in on it, page 183 here. It's put in the form of a question. But is capitalism any better? Capitalism is being assailed by many today in the United States and other countries. 35 years ago, Robert Nash described the attacks being leveled against capitalism. Capitalism is blamed for every evil in contemporary society, including its greed, materialism, selfishness, and the prevalence of fraudulent behavior, the displacement of society's tastes, the pollution of the environment, the alienation, and the despair within society, the vast disparities of wealth. Even racism and sexism are treated as effects of capitalism. We're told, that was the end of the quote, that it is not the only reason for financial Inequality, it is also the root of all America's sexism, xenophobia, and white supremacy. Some go far as to say as in America's capitalistic system has been a detriment to the entire world. Other countries have been reduced to poverty by American capitalism, which exploits other countries. They say that capitalism must be unmasked and exposed for the evil that it is. The last capitalist will hang, the Marxists have said, and it will be them who sold us the rope. Now, I've used this quote before when I've talked to people, right? The idea that the capitalists, they don't understand what they're dealing with. They don't understand the underlying theology, essentially, of who it is they're working with and what's going on around them. Now, what's interesting to me is when when you listen to this, a lot of progressive Christians, indeed, some people that pose as pastors have thrown out that, well, capitalism isn't really any better than Marxism. It's not really any better than socialism. It has its problems too. Yes, but those problems aren't inherent to the system. They're inherent to mankind. They're inherent to humanity. So every system in place by man is going to come short. And it's setting up a false dichotomy, a straw man, as if you will. And one wonders what these progressive pastors really want. They're animated by their own hate. They're animated by their own shortcomings of what they could or couldn't accomplish. They perhaps are driven by their own fears. Now, 
I'm purely speculating here, but, but I know a few of these pastors or alleged pastors. And I, for a long, long time, I wanted to give them the benefit of the doubt. I wanted to say, well, they know Jesus. They want their people to know Jesus, but they spend an awful lot of time concerned about things that quite frankly seem counterproductive. I know of no Marxist or socialist country out there that is pro-Jesus, that is pro-Christianity. Yet these same people, under the guise of progressism, they sell this story. If we will just take away this little bit of capitalism, if we'll, if we'll just chip away this little bit of uh, protected behavior, we'll, just, we'll make things slightly better. And oh, by the way, we need to punish you for the sins of your grandfathers or your great grandfathers because, you know, there's disparities in outcomes. So clearly that's your fault. Keep in mind, you didn't even exist when those things happened because, you know, you've best, you've benefited from whatever systematic thing has been in place since then. Okay, maybe. But at what point is it enough? And the answer is never is. So while I really don't identify with the white thing, right? I'm a mutt. I don't, I don't even necessarily subscribe to a specific heritage coming out of Europe, though I guess if you wanted to, you know, quantify, I, I'm mostly German and Irish. But there's also Slavic in there. And if you look up the term Slavic and what its origin is, it should come to no surprise that it is based on the idea that we were slaves. Slaves in a different era to a different group of people, but slaves nonetheless, because slavery has always existed. But again, we don't hear about that. We don't talk about that. It's only when it's convenient to beat up on certain groups of Christianity. And again, you know, you do what you want, but what remains is hollowed, meaningless theology in my opinion. Uh, I was going to get one last quote in here from this book. (sighs) Talks about Venezuela. Talks about how Venezuela did not actually default economically. This is page 189. Rather, the government printed more money, creating inflation of more than 2 million percent. Once a country embraces socialism, there is no easy way back. There is, after all, no end to money. Just print more. But as Germany learned after World War I, printing more money to pay a nation's debt can only temporary answer before the economic disaster follows. Keep in mind, we've seen this very same thing play out right here in this country. Look at what we've done to ourselves under the guise of a shutdown. We've got to, you know, we've got to protect ourselves. We've got to make sure that things don't... Uh, go under, right? We, we have to protect the least of these, if you will. It's gotten to the point now that you're not even allowed to separate yourselves from this crazy, from this nonsense and directly related to the economic, right? And, and the proposed racial issues. Then we throw in the sexual deviancy and we talk about People that believe something different or want to act out differently in their lives, they're shamed publicly. They're run into the ground. People seek to destroy their lives because you don't agree with the mainstream. And there are people out there 
that choose to go to private schools. And they want their children to be in an environment that does not contone the alphabet lifestyle. But the alphabet lifestyle seeks to take that freedom away as well and force them to bow to their agenda. The notion being that parents don't know what's best for their children. Those who represent the sexual revolution are the true atheists, oh, I'm sorry, arbitrators of morality. Accept our morality no matter how much you disagree with us or else. And if you don't, they shame you. And the sad thing is, is private schools agree to this indirectly when they take government funds. The whole purpose of having a private school is to separate yourself from government control. But when you then turn around and allow for government to fund things, even if it's in part, they assert their control. Again, what remains, right? The public discourse has been taken over. Even private discourse in private schools have been branded and affected. And people don't notice. They, they weren't prepared for what happened. They allowed themselves to trust those that hate them. We talk about the idea of hate and hate's a modification of, you know, the opposite of love, right? But you can't love something if you don't hate other things. That That's an argument. Now, whether you agree with that argument or not, I think it has some validity. Now, when I jump over to the uh, book with Torba and Isker, talking about taking dominion in discipling nations, he points out in chapter four that uh, Christianity and Judaism are distinct and incompatible. They're irreconcilable, irreconcilable differences. One religion believes Jesus Christ is an eternally begotten son of God. And the second person of the Trinity and divine logos made in flesh and currently reigns over earth at his father's right hand. The other believes Jesus is merely a human who died and is suffering for eternity in hell. Now, there are a lot of well-meaning people that are conservatives. I would say there are a lot of well-meaning Jewish folks, particularly some I know and I respect and I enjoy their time. And But they see us as an entirely different thing. We have common cause. We, we want to work together on certain things. But at the end of the day, they don't believe in the same Jesus because they don't believe in Jesus at all. And you got to be careful on being unequally yoked, right? That's the argument being put forth by Torba and Isker here. But at the same time, Christianity fights amongst itself. I mean, we have to deal with the whole progressive wing, right? They don't, uh, they don't tell the line. They don't agree with us on many things. And one, one could wonder why that might be, but I suspect that it has something to do with what they call the eschatology of victory. Now, on the uh, bottom of page 39 here, the settlers did not have the same expectation for the future as many Christians in America do today. It is no coincidence that as novel eschatology that is pessimistic about the future has become the majority view of American Christians and supplanted what had been previously optimistic, hopeful, and expectation for the future of Christ's kingdom on earth. Our country began to suffer serious and precipitous spiritual, cultural, social, economic, and political decline. In other words, as soon as the people who built and defended this country over generations 
The kind of American Christians who believe in God's word stop believing in the future success of the gospel to disciple nations. We began to ever more rapidly circle the drain. So what is he saying here? <laughs> well, he gives, he gives a pretty good argument. And, and again, I want to be clear. This is less about what I personally believe and more about what is coming from these people, what it is they're derived and you know, there's this hate and this angst for anybody that calls himself a nationalist, much less a Christian nationalist. But we got to hear them out. We got to hear their side of the story. We shouldn't necessarily listen to what somebody else says about what they believe and what they say and what they think. But perhaps we got to listen to them. Now, there is a danger here, right? Because they're only going to put their best forward. They're only going to tell the things that they want you to know. But isn't that true about everything? Isn't everything we hear sculptured and created in order to influence what our outcome is here. They basically want to dismiss Schofield's uh, study Bible. They want to deal with the idea that John Darby's uh, innovation in 1830 has been not a positive outcome in these United States, not a positive outcome for Christianity, because no longer do we look to our victory. We look at the rapture. Now, as a Christian, and I was raised in, you know, the evangelical church, I got to say, at least since the 80s, I've heard over and over and over again how Christ is coming back and we don't need to worry about it because the world's going to continue to devolve until Christ returns. It's part of the process. But what if that's wrong? Right? That, that's what they're saying here. What, what if actually Christ is already on his throne and we need to be doing his work and we needed to be occupying and we need to put forth the effort to build those institutions. Now, I know I've talked about this a little bit in the past, and I think it's a fair question. And now that he's bringing up this uh, argument, I think it's worthy of a discussion. And maybe we'll spend some more time in future episodes talking about that. There is a very, uh, I guess what I would call a dense uh, argument being made here in this book because I, I swear it's less than 100 pages total but a lot of a lot of things to consider here on page 54 it talks about preparing for a multi-generational fight now what's interesting is I've been talking about this very same thing off and on apart from what this is here he says we must be prepared to wage a multi-generational spiritual war against demonic anti-christian worldviews that are dominating our cultural and Western society. Our sons have been through the classics. I, th I think he's talking about the author's sons. We have been through the classics, all Greek philosophy, the entire Bible. And we know how to build things with hands, shoot guns, grow food, hunt fish, lift weights, and start a business by the time they're 18. They will be fishers of men who fear and worship the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. They will conquer, lead, and take dominion of all nations for the glory of God. The world's sons will be demoralized for 18 years in the demonic schools, propagandized by the enemy's entertainment and news, in quotes, media, and then sink in the mountain of debt, slavery, to be intellectually castrated by some Marxist college. Next, they will be hired by some war corporation in the city or a beltway job where they can be lambasted and ruled over by some Antichrist who hates them for the next 40 years of their lives. We are not the same. Change will not happen overnight, but over generations. The victory is inevitable if we plan, build, and play the long game. Our victory is inevitable because the war was already won on the cross. We must accept that this is simply another battle, 
a great battle of our age, and we will be victorious as so many of our brothers and sisters came before us in their own retrospective or respective battles. It is our sacred duty to rise to the great challenge of our age, as so many have done before us. We stand on the shoulders of giants who stood on the shoulders of Christ our King. Now, he then takes a little time to talk about uh, the Protestant, Catholic, and Orthodox brothers and sisters who have inspired the authors to publish this book, and they recognize and respect the differences and the united shared love for Jesus Christ, our King. Now, again, take what you want from this. I I encourage you. It's, It's a very short little book. It's like 10 bucks. It's a quick read, but it's something to consider. You've got to know what we're dealing with. It's fair to say that temporarily, at least in our own country, whatever perceived majority or plurality that we hold is ceasing to do the job and the work that it was given to do. Now, I want to jump over to the Boniface option. And again, I might do a little more review out of these books as time goes on or a little more mm, reference. But this is the opening to the Boniface option. And he talks about living in a dystopia. And again, this goes right to the point of the, the subject today, right? What remains? We, you, currently, you live in a dystopia. Every part of human existence in our world has been turned on its head. The world we live in is an inversion of what God created you to live in. All that is good is treated as though it were repugnant. All that is beautiful is treated as though it was repulsive. The truth is forbidden while the most outrageous lies are exalted. The world did not become like this by accident or by inexorable forces of history. The world is engineered to be this way. It was designed to take the life of your ancestors had, tear it apart, and prevent you from obtaining a normal human way of life. Then he goes on to talk about (laughs) the phrase fake and gay. He said, what may seem like a transgressive, softmark, internet pejorative has far more meaning than you may think. Trash world is inherently not real. It is a massive revolutionary superstructure made possible by the technological progress and the material abundance of an industrial society which allows society to continue to function despite running 180 degrees from the created order. It's pretty bold, pretty bold. And again, he, he makes his arguments and I suggest that rather than argue with me, you take the time and read the book. Take the time and read the book. Don't argue with me. It's it's real simple. This isn't my argument. This is somebody else's argument. And the argument seeks to answer the question, what remains? What is there left and what can we do with it? In all three books, it talks about how we are not a conquered people, but we behave like it. Christ is king and we need to realize that. We need to look at how do we overcome this? What do we do to get past this? The argument being that just because temporarily we've got a setback or temporarily we're in a situation 
where we have failed doesn't mean that you can't succeed. It's going to take time. It's going to take effort. Again, these are all themes that I've presented over and over again. The idea of what remains is we the people. Now, if you're not a Christian, that's fine. We're happy to convert you. The, uh, the baptismal is open. The conversion is real. The conversion is necessary. We, we will work with co-belligerents all day long, right? That's what we do. We look for allies. But at the end of the day, the thing that binds us together is Christ. And both books uh, with Iskar as author are very careful to say, look, we don't care where you came from. We don't care where your parents came from. We don't care what you look like and we don't care what language you speak if you're a brother and sister in the Lord. We need to work together to serve Christ our King. This is their argument. So when I hear the term Christian nationalism, they're actually saying every nation should be Christian. They're actually saying that even though these United States is a quasi-pluralistic society, Every knee needs to bow and every tongue needs to confess, just like they do in Sweden, just like they do in Nigeria, just like they do in Laos. The problem is, is they have not been nearly as successful in those other nations as they had been in these United States. And the question is, is how do we get these United States back and how do we drive positive outcome in Sweden, Nigeria, and Laos? And those were just off the top of my head, not necessarily referenced in the book. But you got to consider... What's at play? What's necessary? How do we get there? Multi-generational strategy of building up good, solid men and women from your own kids, from your own grandkids, and help them to see a positive outcome. Help them to see that all is not lost. Help them to focus on the ultimate victory with Christ our King. What remains is the nucleus. What remains is the remnant all that's necessary to make the difference. It's been said the world was changed based on the actions of 12 men. And if you believe that, then you know it can and should be done again. Whether Christ comes back in six months, six years, or 60 years should be, el- should be irrelevant to our actions today. We need to build for tomorrow and the next day, and the next year, and the next generation. And if we're not doing that, we're not doing our job. I know it's very convenient for a lot of churchianity folks to just throw up their hands and say, well, God's coming back. There's nothing I can do. There's no difference to be made. When that's demonstrably not true. And that's certainly not how our forefathers and foremothers looked at it in the past. They saw that there was a victory to be gained through Christ if they would just do the work, if they would just show up. They say the future belongs to those that are there. And I'm here to tell you that if you aren't having children that you're raising within the church, within the Bible's teachings, you're not going to be there. Your family is not going to be present. There is no future. Your posterity is void. What remains is the remnant, and we need to act like it, we need to build like it, and we need to look forward to making a difference long term. And with that, gone a little long, this has been, according to Callis, a little Labor Day special action here, if you will, and I will see you on the other side.